Hey, welcome to Fitz Dog Radio. I'm Fitzsimmons. Greg, present. I am present. I, uh, I'm just getting back into meditating. It's been a minute. And the difference is just, I, it's one of those things, like if I did yoga every day and meditate every day, I would be so fucking grounded and happy and maybe even confident at some point. But um, I'm hanging in there. Uh, watching George and Tammy, holy shit, it's on Paramount+. Plus. I don't know where it aired. It might have been on Showtime originally. So goddamn good. And it got me into Tammy Wynette, who I'd always know, you know, like Stand By Your Man. And I definitely listened to her over the years. And I always liked her. But goddamn, I've been going down the rabbit hole the last few days and listening to her. She is truly one of the powerhouse country singers of all time. And I'm not... Look, I'm trying. I'm listening to a lot of country. You guys have given me a lot of good suggestions. Turn me on to some great people. Um, uh, but I got to say, Tammy Wynette might might be the best of all. T- Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette might be the best of all time. Just so moving and not hacky. Tammy's like old school country, but I don't find it to be... Someone trying to act like a cowboy and whiskey and breaking out. It's just fucking, some of it gets so redundant. Jesus. Uh, But her shit is pure. It's real. So check out the show. It's starring, uh, fuck, I'm so bad with names. The guy's name is... uh, I'll think of it. I'll say it in the next pod. They, they're, so, they're so talented. They're going to win some Emmys. I don't know if it came out this year. If it did, it's going to win a lot of Emmys, especially since there was no other shows because the strike, which is over. Strike. Well, I shouldn't say that. I am not celebrating the strike being over yet because it is a it, nothing's been signed. It still has to get voted on by the membership. But there is a preliminary agreement between the studios and the writers so I'm very excited to be able to get back to not working in the writing industry because of uh, who I am. You know, I'm not one of these bitter guys like, oh, so it's not fair to straight white guys. 57-year-old straight white guys not getting a lot of shots at the plate these days. There's way less jobs, and uh, there's a lot more diversity hiring, which is good. Octave hire, which is good. Not good for me, though. It's good for society, maybe. But selfishly, I'd like to have another writing job. Anyway, went around uh, Venice a lot lately. Uh, You know, I celebrate my... Is it a town or a city? I don't know if Venice is considered its own city. But God damn it, I've been here for 22 years, and I love it. And Annie Letterman... I don't know if I talked about this on the last podcast, but... Uh, we always meet up for coffee, me, her, and, uh, we got the Venice three, um, with, uh, who am I for, why am I forgetting her name? Um, anyway, there's somebody else. Jesus, I, I can't fucking, you understand something? I have AD, Jessime Peluso. I have ADD, and when I try to recall names, if it doesn't come instantly, then I'm like, picture a guy in a pool trying to get a beach ball and slapping at it 
like swimming towards the beach ball, slapping. That's and the name is the beach ball, and it just flees from me, and I can't get any closer to it uh, until I ask somebody to help me with the beach ball. Hey, can you hand me the beach ball? Can you hand me Jessamay Peluso's name? Anyway, so me and Annie went on a big walk last week, and I took her through the walk streets. We went, I think I talked about this, but anyway, we're walking again tonight. But the Venice, uh, the Abbot Kinney Festival, which is the main kind of thoroughfare through Venice, it's kind of like the shopping, restaurant, bar, strip. It's very, it's gotten pretty elegant. But they have a street fair that's been going on since I've lived here. And when I started, it was like a block long. Uh, It was just basically all the merchants would put a table in front of their shops. And maybe it got about 30% more crowded than it normally would would on a Sunday. Now it's an extravaganza. It runs 20 blocks. I don't know if there's 20. There's probably 15 blocks on Abikini. They shut the road down. And there is live music, there's beer gardens, there's food trucks, there's amusement rides for the kids. There is, uh, you know, OG Venice Latino dudes on tricked out bicycles like you've never seen. Picture a low rider as a beach cruiser and uh, just a lot of characters. Bras were prohibited. You had to check your bra at the beginning. They were not allowed. There were not. There was one bra, and uh, people really gave for a dirty look. It was not cool. A lot of interesting footwear. You know, like th- you could give Venice shit for a lot of different things. You go, oh, it's fucking homeless. It's dirty. Well, then fucking grow up. If you don't like a little dirt, if you don't like a little fucking crime, go move to goddamn you know, Peoria and live in a gated community. But if you want to see racial diversity, you want to see gays and lesbians and tries and bi's and queers and all that, it's all there. You want to see old and young hanging out together, artists, musicians, fucking, it's great. It's a great place. People wear interesting footwear. They mix it up. Boots, flip flops. <laughs> I hate when dudes wear flip flops, especially if you got some cruddy ass, dried out toenails. Nobody wants to see that shit. What the fuck? What are you? What is this, Margaritaville? Are you wasting away in Margaritaville? Put some goddamn toes on your shoes. So we got there at like, I think we got there at like noon and we were there till it ended at like 6 30 basically it ended by like police cruisers drove up abbott kinney with with sanitation trucks picking up the garbage cans and they basically pushed you out of the street we i didn't want to leave we had such a great day it was me and aaron and uh tom o'neill my buddy who wrote chaos the amazing book about the manson murders and uh the 60s and lsd the, the Kennedy assassinations, one of the best books ever about the 60s. Definitely about Manson. Fuck Bugliosi. So get that book. Uh, so me and Tom are walking around together with my wife and Mikey Fitzgibbon and assortments of other people we ran into during the day. 
And it was fun because Tom and I were getting re- – I don't get recognized a ton, but I get recognized, you know, walking down the street. On an average day, I'll get recognized at least once. Uh, but at a festival, it's a lot. And so me and Tom were competing about who got recognized more, which, again, was not a ton. But, you know, four or five times, four or five different people. And then they – but without, without exception – if they recognized Tom, he would say, do you know who this is? And they would go, oh, that's Greg Fitzsimmons. And if they recognized me, I would say, do you know who this is? And they would say, oh, it's Tom O'Neill. So that was fun. My son came screaming through. Like, uh, I don't think he even knew we were there. And he came came up the middle. The block was fucking shoulder to shoulder crowded. And him and his buddy Gabriel were riding skateboards up the middle of the street. I don't I don't know why, but uh, they're heading off to Central America in a month or two. They're going to go for like four months, Guatemala, um, Mexico, Costa Rica. They're going to a bunch of countries. He's just working right now at a restaurant, saving up some money. But they're both fluent in Spanish. And this kid, Gabriel, is kind of a cool Renaissance man. He does it all. So he's in good hands with him. Um, lot of good Central American food at the festival. We had empanadas. We had uh, cortadas, although I think that's Spanish. They, everything was very international. There was fucking Brazilian food. There was Thai food. It was so great. Um. So anyway, good times. You guys should check it out next year. It's usually in September, September every year. Um, had a great weekend down in Escondido, which is about uh, 40 minutes north of San Diego, inland a little bit. It was where me and Aaron went on our timeshare trip. See last podcast for details of that. But I was back down there at a place called the Grand Comedy Club. Really fucking fun little club. Intimate, uh, groovy people. They're, um, you know, they're just just interesting. I talked to a couple in the front row. The woman was dressed. She was about maybe, maybe pushing 30, but she had on a jean jacket, like a denim Levi jacket. And her hair was long, but it was feathered back like Farrah Fawcett. And she had on like, like blue aqua, dangling earrings and heavy eyeliner. Total eighties. She was like Pat Benatar, and she was pretty and she was badass. And I go, "What do you do for a living?" And she said, uh, "I'm a predatory bird handler." And I said, "What is a predatory bird? Do they hang around like, like parks and leer at children?" But she's like red red tail hawks. And uh, what are those other ones that fly? Falcons. And she takes them hunting. People, she, she works for a company and they take them hunting for rabbits and squirrels. I go, yeah, and cats. Don't tell me the hawks never come back with a fucking cat. And she kind of looked down and away. She, yeah, she, it, it happens. And then they slide that fucking collar off and they throw it down the sewer. But they, there's some cat... This, the cat population is dipping in Escondido since this company started. And then her, her boyfriend, same thing. He was kind of a good-looking dude. And I go, that's weird because with that job, I would have guessed homely and kind of nerdy. But you guys are good-looking and cool. 
Uh, so thanks to everybody who came down. Uh, Jacob Feldman featured for me. He did a great job. Funny young comic. Check him out. He's working out of L.A. Um, speaking of stand-up, I'm coming to Shirley, Massachusetts on October 5th at the Bull Run. And then Manchester, New Hampshire the next night. Nashua on October 7th. Foxborough, October 8th. Sacramento, Arlington, Baltimore, Houston, Bakersfield, Austin at the Mothership, November 17th through 19th, just announcing that now. San Francisco at the Punchline, November 30 through December 2nd. Fort Worth, Atlanta, all shows available for ticketing at fitzdog.com, where you can also send me a message. Send me an email. I get back to everybody, always. It's what I do. I also go to a lot of sporting events. I go to concerts. I go to theater. How do I get there? I go to Game Time, baby. The best app for buying tickets for whatever you want to see live. Um, they basically cash in on this like uh, last minute tickets, flash deals, and they get you in. You don't have to stress about, oh, should I buy them now before tickets go up? Just hang with them, track the tickets. And then you'll get yourself on their app. It's a piece of cake app. Couple taps. It's right there. You don't have to download. You have to print. You don't have to transfer. Piece of cake. Check out what it looks like from the seats. There's a video tab on the app. And uh, and they've got a guarantee. If you find tickets for less, they will refund you 110%. Uh, if it's the same row and show and, and all that. Um what else? Uh, oh, right now I'm looking at tickets for Jason Isbell in Nashville. So we're gonna track those. We're gonna and then Wheeler Walker Jr. We're gonna get our tickets for that. And it, it's local. You put in where you live, and it shows you what's going on in your area. Open your eyes up to who knows? Maybe Chelsea Handler's doing live comedy in your area. Maybe Mo Mandel. Maybe Rush is touring again with a new drummer. Download the GameTime app. Wait, take the guesswork out of buying tickets with GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code FITSDOG for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code F-I-T-Z-D-O-G. FITSDOG for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey, now. I uh, want to give a shout-out also. My friend Zoe Friedman sent me all the info for the Comedy Gives Back Health Net. If you're a comedian who's struggling, uh, Comedy Gives Back is this great organization that I work with. I'm on the board for one of their events, the golf tournament that's coming up. And they raise money, and they help out comics that are down on their luck, uh, need mental health care, they need... Uh, drug rehab. They've done an amazing... I've met so many comics that have been helped out by Comedy Gives Back. So this is a shout-out to comics. So basically, if you're looking for a way when you're on the road or here to... Um, uh, it's not meant as a health insurance, but what it does is it gives you access to uh, a year of coverage where... It can find you low-cost and transparent pricing for prescriptions, specialists, urgent care, ER visits. So go to ComedyGivesBack.com slash HealthNet and see what they can offer you. And why? Where do they get the money for? In this case, uh, this program is being funded by 
Burt and Leanne Kreischer. Uh, they're doing a, a the fully loaded tour is getting uh, a generous support to Comedy Gives Back, which is a shout out to Bert and Leanne for that. Uh, all right, got some mail from you guys. Rick Schwartz says that Maitland Ward is a relative newcomer to the new to the porn world, but did you know that in her previous life she was an actor, like in Boy Meets World? She is one of only a few who successfully made the transition from mainstream to pornography. So she's a woman that I met doing the Adam Carolla show who was uh, very sexy and very fun. And she was great on the show. And uh, yeah, so there you go. Lucia Ribera has our first overheard. She said, one woman at a table in a coffee shop says to her friend, why don't you smile? You'll be so much prettier. Seriously, strangers come up to me and tell me to smile. And that oh, that's a tough, Did I, I don't know if I read this one already, but you can't say it enough. Just smile, try. I don't smile, I have resting cock face. And uh, my wife has always been told, she grew up in New York City and everybody was always walking past her on the street telling her to smile. It's hard, it's hard, but it's worth it. Just try to smile. I mean, maybe you can retrain your face. Maybe if you get Botox just in the upper part of your cheek, maybe that'll suck the sides of your lips up into like a joker-looking smile. Lucia also overheard uh, a man walking with a woman on the sidewalk. He says, you can't drink beer, but you can smoke crack on the street. That is true. I've seen cops on 6th Street in Austin walk past somebody smoking a crack pipe in, in, in a storefront, in a recessed storefront. I saw it. And yet they will bust you for drinking beer. I think maybe the difference is they're making money. The crackhead's got no cash. He is not going to pay a ticket. He's not going to show up for a court date. What's the point? Why waste your fucking ink and your pen writing the ticket? Give it to the drunk frat guy whose father is going to make sure he goes to court with a lawyer and pays his ticket. Smart, police. Um, all right, let's get to it. Uh, my guest today, holy shit, have I been dying to get this guy on. He is the biggest comedian to come out of Ireland in 30 years. Um, truly respected by everybody in the comedy community. He's huge over in uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland, and he's a guy who uh, you should check out all his specials. There's one I there's one I just watched on Netflix that's really good. I forget what it's called, but uh, he's got like eight specials out. Um, he's been on the Late Late Show a bunch of times, Late Show with Letterman a bunch of times. He was on that show, Father Ted. You definitely know him if you watch Dairy Girls. He's the father in Dairy Girls. And he um, he has his own show called The Tommy Tiernan Show over in Ireland, which is really great. Anyway, I had a chance to talk to him. Sadly, it's over Zoom, but uh, next time I'm in Ireland, we'll be doing it in person. But I think it came out great over Zoom anyway. It was a really great chat, as they say in Ireland. It was good crack. So I hope you enjoy uh, my talk here with Tommy Tiernan.
You look great. Beautiful. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Really? <laughs> I'm, uh, I just got a new computer, so I think my definition is higher than it used to be. Well, it suits you. You have, you have the face for high definition. Oh, God bless you, Tommy. <laughs> uh, Tommy Tiernan joins me right now on Fitzdog Radio. Tommy's a gentleman who, uh, if you don't know him in the States, which is a goddamn shame, he's, the, uh, he's comedy royalty in Ireland and around the UK and... I'm, I'm, I would imagine Australia and Europe. Not really. No, no. I'm kind of. Um, uh, I'm. I would have a profound impact uh, <laughs> in very few territories. <laughs> I think you once described yourself as a local poet. I like that. That was a long time ago. Now I'm more of. Um, I'm. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently. Um, I'm one of the um, the others. Uh, I'm one of the unknown prophets. One of yeah. those awkward little books of the Bible. I know. I, I I was I was thinking about this actually before we got talking. You know, um, I think it was about God. I don't know. Maybe nearly twenty years ago when we did a show together in I think it was San Francisco. Is that what it from, was? San Francisco. I think so. Yeah. There's a. A red-headed lady who was running the club. Oh, was Molly. Famous. Molly, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Molly I Schmink. think it was her, her place. So we're still at it 20 years later. And so how do we keep going? How do we, you know, you go through, uh, stand-up has appetites in terms of popularity and all that kind of malarkey and whatever style of comedy is in and been given a high profile. And sometimes that's shining on you and sometimes it's not. So how do you keep, how do we keep just going with, the, I know we're we're financially obliged to keep going. Yeah. But, and creatively, you know, that thing of just keep going and keep working on the craft and... Um, so that's, well, I, it, is I think a moving, that's what, it is a moving target, but uh, it's funny when people ask me, is it really hard now in this woke environment? I just have such a fucking issue with that word. In this woke environment to do stand-up comedy, I go, it's the opposite. It's that people come sure. to comedy clubs because it's the last bastion of free speech. It's the only yeah, it's yeah. the only place you can in the confines of that room you can talk freely. And, you know, especially now, I don't know if they do it in Ireland, but uh, a lot of clubs in the States, including that club in San Francisco, have these sleeves where you come in and you got to stick your cell phone in. Oh, yeah. Club yeah. locks it and you get on the way out. So it preserves that. But um, we're the hookers in the whorehouse in Utah. <laughs> is that a, is that? <laughs> and, you know, the new deal is one of them just gave a 10 percent discount to Mormons because they live right next door. And the Mormons have outlawed pornography on the internet, so they go, "Come on over here." And apparently, ninety percent of the clients now are Mormons. <laughs> wow, that's a biblical percentage as well. I think um, evangelical Christians are encouraged to give ten percent of their earnings as a tithe. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so yeah. the. Pro the the prostitutal tithe. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ was the most woke guy in history. You think that, you know, if you're giving money to a prostitute, that's exactly what Jesus would have done. Mary Magdalene. Um, sure. He hung, out, he hung out with them anyway. We're not sure of um, the details of his interactions with them. Right. But we know for sure that they were friends. <laughs> 
We know that for a fact. <laughs> yeah, nobody talked back then. You could be friends with a prostitute without stuff being said about you. No, it was expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of yeah, countercultural figures. But isn't it funny when you think about Jesus? Like all these, all these uh, quote unquote Christians in this country, which has really just become an arm of the political right. Sure. And yeah. they are the most anti woke group. These Christians and Jesus Christ. All he cared about was the poor and putting the last shall be first. He used to wash the feet. Of paupers. Yeah. He was a kind of a mentally ill communist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't really. You know, yeah, he was. He was. He was an unbalanced Soviet spy That's right. in That's right. Palestine. Yeah, there was Marx, Engels, and Jesus. Yeah. Um, that's funny. The whole uh, evangelical thing in the states. Like, I. I did some shows in America in April of this year and wasn't really... See, for, for people outside of America, um, when we were growing up in m most parts of the world in the 1970s and 1980s, America w was the greatest place on earth in, in terms of culture and excitement, uh, possibility and hope. It was just like... It was the destination it was the it was where humanity aspired to be so that adventure was had all through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s and all the type of stuff and I hadn't been over there for such a long time and the gigs were booked and I wasn't really looking forward to it I was going you know the, the has the adventure gone out of America or something or maybe now the adventure is in the fact that it's falling to pieces yeah. That's where the adventure is. Um, but what I realised when I was there was how much I loved the place. Yeah. And how much I... Americans get a bad rap abroad, but my... I mean, I loved walking around and talking to people and just... I, th I think you guys have an amazing sense of humour. I think you're... There's a slight edge of sarcasm to all of you. I think yeah. there's just everybody is ironic and just ready for a funny line or they're sincere and they're friendly. Um, so I, I love it over there. You well, know, that's a, the, that's an apt description you know, of Ireland as well. Well, you just you were just over here, not far from where I live, actually. And what right, was and your I, ex experience I reached out that? to you um, and then uh, I it was a very flaky reach out because I had okay. spoken to do you know a guy named Kevin you know Kevin Healy obviously of course yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. he booked me in and over at the uh, Roisin Dub is that how you say it Roisin Dub so it's, it's the Roisin Dove. It translates, Dove it translates as the Black Rose oh okay we got one of those in Boston we got a yeah. Black Rose pub in Boston um, so I was over there family vacation but I dropped in and I did one show over there and he is just the nicest guy in the world and s yeah. such a character and a guy named Carl Spain opened for oh, me yeah. oh my good oh yeah. my good god yeah 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 right. he's he's kind of like a, how would you describe him he is I mean he's destructive and he's fluent <laughs> and he's brilliant <laughs> and he's a mess and he's fantastic. Yeah, he, yeah. He's a bit like if if Cheers was set in an actual shelter for the homeless. 
Carl would be one of the guys at the bar. Hey, how's it going, Norm? You. I have no yeah. home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he has cultivated the uh, the look of destitution to a T. No, he's but he's amazing. I mean, yeah, he his, comes off his, in a full sweat when he's oh done. Oh my god! But yeah. his power of uh, his, his mind is so sharp comedically um, yeah he's amazing anyway so so Carl opened for you so, well I guess you should say he hosted I don't know what you okay. call it over there but um, so it was great meeting him and watching him I, he, he brought me up and I go uh, Carl Spain everybody 45 minutes set 3 minutes of material how about a hand yeah. for him <laughs> that's him um, but, but then uh, we rented uh, an uh, a Airbnb from a guy named uh, James Cunningham, and I think your oh, wife yeah. and his wife know each other. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. so he put us in touch, and I was like, oh, yeah, God, I'd love to have a, co- a coffee with Tommy. And uh, and then by the time I got the info, the we were but we had to go to the cliff some more. Oh, wow. and so I texted you just to say uh, yeah, I would have yeah, loved to see you. But, um, so, but Galway, let's talk about Galway for a moment. It was, uh, you know... My my grandparents are all from Ireland, and so I've been over there. That was probably like my fifth or sixth trip over there, and yeah. and I got to bring my kids for the first time. Oh, lovely! Yeah. And they're twenty two and twenty, and they both uh, have been immersed in the, you know, Irish music. And uh, I used I used to read Yeats to them at dinner sometimes, and I just wanted them to not for. And unfortunately, the limericks that my grandfather used to recite. When we had holidays, he would go on for an hour. And as he started to lose his mind, my mother and her sisters would finish the limericks for him. All right. And it's so sad when I think that that died away. Like, we, I don't know those limericks anymore. And they were beautiful. And uh, so anyway, so I bring them to, to Ireland and they got it. They immediately felt like this is where my DNA is. This is where wow. I started. Yeah. You know, it's, it yeah. was incredible. Galway's a... Um an interesting spot. Um, Galway has had to develop the ability. It's a small, it's very small. It's only a population of maybe 80 or 100,000 people. Yeah. But it has had, for financial reasons, it's had to develop the ability to tolerate and welcome the stranger. So uh, initially it would have been people from Connemara, which for those listeners don't know it's kind of like uh, it's a wild untamable treeless rocky part of Ireland uh, people live there they're native Irish language speakers so Galway would have been had a strong English language base so they had to be able to deal with these kind of crazy mountain people they had to be able to deal with fishermen from Spain and Portugal and France landing in the port right and then in the, I guess, in around the 1930s and 1940s, in order to survive, it had to be able to welcome students. Right. And because the place is so small and the student population could be at any time 5 or 10% of the people living there, you had to develop the ability to live with odd creatures coming from other parts of the world and right. the country. Right. Um, and now it's a big tourist place, so it has it's developed the ability to to live with the strangeness of that. And I landed here, I've, I've been living here 35 years now and I love it. I, I love the fact that we're right beside the Atlantic Ocean and the the fact that 
every day, the sea is different from hour to hour, never yeah. mind from day to day. The weather changes so much here. Um, you look out across Galway Bay and you can see infinity in the sense that there's, you know, there's no there's no buildings in the way. You look as far as the eye can manage into the into the distance, into the horizon. And the city is a thousand years old, so the centre of it, the streets are quite narrow and windy. The suburbs are boring like every other suburb in yeah. every other country. Uh, but the city centre has retained that kind of quirky, unpredictability, topography. And I love it. Um, I... It's got a if beautiful I, cathedral. I think it's, I think it's oh, yeah. like one of the newest cathedrals in Europe, actually. There used to be a prison. No kidding. Yeah, that was a prison in the 1920s and 1930s. And then we just started behaving ourselves so we'd know more bad people. Oh, good for you. Isn't that amazing? How'd you <laughs> yeah, do it? Uh, it was either that or the English left. <laughs> it was one or the other. And now, and when it was a prison, did the priest just come in and say, uh, hey, listen, you guys are all Catholics now. Uh, you've, got, you've got a lot of sin to repent for. Line up. I don't know. I guess it's a strange thing. Like, I drove past a monastery today which is now a five-star hotel. So those monks 300 years ago could never, uh, in a building that was committed to poverty and chastity, (laughs) (laughs) would never have imagined 200 years later that rich people would be fucking in their cells. And it wasn't forced. There was no, no there's no, no forced sex anymore. It's all consensual. Um, oh, and that's I think hilarious. Maybe that, I think maybe that with the, the prison then turning into a cathedral, yeah. uh, you're talking about the, the you know, the, the criminal classes uh, being told that one day this will be a place of prayer and sanctimony. So I guess it's it's great to have those kind of nothing nothing ever stays the same, which is yeah. great. I, we have there's a a prison right next to where I live in Venice Beach, and uh, it's converted to an art gallery now. It's all like graffiti art from the Hispanic community mm. in L.A. and uh, and it's just great because you go into the cells. Each cell is a different artist that's oh, that's wow. showing their stuff. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then and then the cathedral. I actually my mom is very Catholic. And so I took her on Sunday morning to the cathedral for mass. And I knew that Catholicism was on the wane in Ireland, but I had I would was not expecting the Sunday 11 o'clock mass was about 20% full. I was like, sure. Wow, yeah. it's over here. Yeah. Um, decency will always find a home. Uh but it's, I think it's wandering at the moment. Yeah. In terms of, so people would have gone to mass before and would have been, would have heard words like love and justice for the poor and love your neighbor. Um, and there was all types of, you know, all types of strange perversities and suppressions happening in and around that. But those words were said in those places. And now those words aren't being said anywhere. Right. So um, it's, uh, we don't have a story anymore. You know, we had, a in Ireland, we had a Catholic story and that was, you know, when the, when we separated from England, we just, the, 
the main thing was to be as un-English as we possibly could. Right. To to separate ourselves from the coloniser. Um, by the way, this is this is I'm very well aware. This is all barroom sociology. <laughs> <This is, laughs> Are we drinking already? Well, I know it's probably five o'clock, so maybe you're deep into your whiskey yeah. at this point. But no, it's all good. I mean, it's I was just surprised because I knew that you guys had legalized abortion, and obviously the priest scandal was very you know very deep yeah. there. But I really didn't expect that. And the funny thing is, is you know, the priest came out and then the altar boys came out. And it's not like the old altar boys. These guys are about six foot three, built. Oh, yeah. No, Nobody's sending their scrawny kid to be an altar boy anymore. No. Um, These guys are like a, bouncers. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a strange time, you know, but I think every time is strange, you know. Yeah. Everybody, every generation thinks it's living in a time of crisis. Say with stand up now, you know, and the way that um, Trump was uh, a real easy target for stand ups, a, a real obvious target. Um, but you listen back to, say, say Bill Hicks, an album recorded in maybe 1992 or something, and he's talking about Bush being the devil. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like every Republican president is the devil. Things right. can't possibly get worse. So we always seem to be living in a time of crisis. Um, I don't know what my original point was, but it's not, not important. Well, it's uh, that, there, that there used to be a focal point for faith and good deeds. And, 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 the church yeah, and now and there where, isn't. Where is that going to be now? Yeah. yeah now, now there isn't. So yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where people go to nourish their decency anymore. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's there. This new Gen Gen Y is gets gets a lot of heat because they're not hardworking and they're not getting on. They're not getting on board with the linear progression of college, you know, internship job. But at the same time, they are. I mean, uh, you know, this woke concept. It's just progress. They are pretty committed. To changing the world, there's a the, you know a, a, so many of my my son's friends who are just getting out of college, you know my son's going to Central America to to teach and to try to like okay. you know he's fluent in Spanish and he wants to like get involved with that. Uh, my daughter wants to work with special needs kids. I think that there's a real philanthropic vibe to these kids, and I don't know that it's going to be organized as much as it's going to be done individually, and who knows what how the internet affects the proliferation of that. Sure, but that was always there. It was, uh, that was always the thing to go to Central America and South America and, and work with people that you thought needed your help. That was always, it's always been part of youth culture. You know, I, I have, I've got six kids, um, two of them in their early 20s. And I, I don't think this, I think this generation, their generation is more anxious maybe than yeah. we ever were. Right. Um, but I don't. I don't think they're. I don't think they're lazy at all. I. Um, I don't. I don't think they're more important than the adults. That's one thing. I. I. I don't hold with this veneration of yeah. children. You know that I. I um, You know there was a time when old people were revered, uh, right. and now we flipped that on its head completely, and it's all about the young. I, I'm, so we're just swinging. Everything is an experiment and and an adventure. Right, right. You know, well, Ireland will one day be united. Why? Because that's the most exciting thing that can happen. 
Right. Do you know what I mean? It's exciting. And yeah. it, it has to happen just out of curiosity. Well, is you know, Brexit going to make it happen? Is that is that going to be the, well, the, the impetus? I have no idea. Um, I have no idea what will make it happen. But it just in, in the sense that we're a species that's hungry for um, stimulation. Right. You know, we can't stay bored for too long. And even if our behaviour is destructive, at least it's fucking interesting. Right. It's, you know what I mean? So even if it's the worst idea in the world to leave the European Union, fuck it, let's, come on, let's yeah. do it. It's interesting. Right, right, right. You know, so I think Ireland will be united one day. I think in America, I mean, things are so interesting there that it's dangerous. <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> Yeah, you, I you, think there's you, an addiction you, to chaos. There's an addiction yeah. to leaders telling you that they are going to change things and they don't have a yeah. plan. The amazing thing is that the Republicans want to repeal health care. Not once have they put forward their own plan that makes any sense. You know, they, the, every plan they have about taxation and going back to the idea that there's trickle-down economics, which has been proven to not, they keep throwing yeah. it back out there because it's radical. It's, you know. But, but there are, you know, as well, there are dangerous people in power. There are people who, by the gift of privilege, are able to tolerate the idea that poverty is a sign that the system is working. Yeah. Because if you have people who fail, that means you have people who can succeed. Right. And as long as you can have people who can succeed, we are doing our job. So the poor people, God be good to them, um, they are a sign that everything is okay. And there are people who believe that. Right. And a lot of them are in very, very, you know, high positions of power and stuff like that. So it's, it's a fucked up, beautiful world. And well, and God, right now that is that is the movement from the top is they're very upset that unemployment is so low in this country right now because it, it's giving the workers some leverage. It started. You're starting to see unions get a little bit more empowered. You're seeing wages go up. Minimum wage mm. has just gone up, and uh, and it's that it, it, that's you know the worst. Karl Marx talked about it. The capitalism demands uh, a big force of uh, you know unemployable people. Yeah. I hope someone's writing this down because it's gold. <laughs> Here's the thing about you. Here's the thing about you, you son of a bitch. You're so fucking smart. It's intimidating for an American. Oh, man, to, I'm not smart. Are you fucking kidding me? Did you did you go to college? Not at all. I was was unemployed. I was I was officially so when I left school, tried to be a priest. That didn't work out. Um, and then I tried to. Uh, um, I, I, I think I just tried to get away from home so I, I moved to Galway and I was on we call it the the unemployment benefit we call it the dole of course over here yeah so we I was on the dole when I was 18 you had a great routine about that of like the dole you had to pro I promise you I won't look for work until Tuesday oh that was it you, what was that type of go you could um <laughs> You had you had to promise to do nothing or something like that. Anyway, you had to yes you, you had to sign a contract each week. Yeah, guaranteeing the state that you would do nothing. Um, and I was long term unemployed. Like uh, by the time I was twenty one, like yeah. long term unemployed. That's wow. the thing you imagine only old people get. Old the old and hopeless. Yeah. Um, no, no, I was unemployed till I was twenty six. 
uh-huh. until, until stand up really and I, I I remember the when we all start doing this job you know um, I think I think because back then it was still a kind of an outsider industry, now it's much more of a thing of, well, if I can do stand-up, then I can be an actor, then I can, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like people see it as a pathway to fame or something. But back then it was still, there was still an element of it it being um, that it had its own kind of... uh, its own existence not connected to any other platforms or something anyway right so, right um and i so the, the i think what we go through in stand up the first thing is the ability to come up with a good joke and you're not you're you're not, you're not thinking of money at this stage mm-hmm. the ability to come up with a good joke the ability to come up with 10 minutes worth of material and the feeling that your body gets being on stage and all those people laughing and then seeing well I wonder could I get a half an hour or 40 minutes and building like that and then one day you turn around and you realise that you maybe say have, have an hour's worth of material or, or whatever it is or you're, you're becoming a bit known on the circuit you realise that you will always be able to make a living doing stand-up comedy mm-hmm. and that living mightn't be mightn't be a very you know, not talking about loads of money but you're talking about there are so many clubs in America and in the UK. I will always be able to earn a living doing this. And I remember that. I remember that being one of the biggest, two big things I remember from doing stand-up. One was when I supported Dennis Leary in a theatre in Dublin. And my first time playing in front of a thousand people. And I remember the, the noise, the size of the noise of the laughter. Yeah, affecting me on a kind of molecular level. Right, right. I'm going, this is a drug. Mm-hmm. My central nervous system is not the same as it was 10 minutes ago. Right. And I remember that going, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, this is a holy moment. <laughs> this yeah. is, yeah. the priesthood could never have given me this. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> even even well, the best of masses. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then sorry, sorry, Greg, and then the other moment was the realisation I can earn a living. And that was yeah. all we got in, got into it for back then. My memory, if memory serves me right. Yeah, I did yeah. not use the word career for at least 10 years. I was yeah. 10 years in before. And now I talk to young comics in the green room that have been doing it for nine months and they're talking about their career and, and what yeah. manager they want and all that stuff. And, and they're sitting in the green room. I go, why are you sitting in here? You got, you know... Bill Burr's on in the main room. You should be in the yeah, back yeah. row soaking this in, you know, sure. not talking about your career. But that yeah. dr- but that drug that you talk about, the first time I did stand-up comedy was a senior, uh, senior year talent show in high school. And I did some cocaine. And then I went on stage and I did some George Carlin. I did a little bit of wow. George Carlin. And then I did my own stuff. And then I started shitting on the teachers and they unplugged the microphone from backstage and so I yelled out to the auditorium I yelled out the rest of my act and I walked off stage out the door and I jumped up and down for about three minutes it was my head was part of it was cocaine but my head was exploding and I'd been going to stand-up clubs since I was a kid like you know I grew up in New York and I went to the comic strip in the comedy cellar and um watched Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and all these great comics and uh 
you know, and, and I, again, like it just became a thing of like, I think the first time you get an erection as an 11 year old and you go, all right, I'm going to be using this. This is going to be a big part of my life. See, if you, if you had to say died uh, some sort of horrific death on the way home to your house that evening and only had that one night, yeah. given all that you did in that one night, that would have been one of the most remarkable mythological career stand-up has ever witnessed. <laughs> They'd be telling stories about you and then they unplugged the mic because he was telling the truth. <laughs> and he was out of his mind on cocaine. Man, you should have seen him. Only ever in one show. Only ever in one fucking show. It's like he landed, he exploded and he was gone. <laughs> he got it, man. He got it. He got, he got it and he gun gone. <laughs> <laughs> and the final scene, I'm slumped forward, the horn is blowing on the car. That's it. It's over. <laughs> like a burning star through the sky. That's a <laughs> oh my God. And Netflix would do eight episodes on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you, so how many clubs are there in Ireland? Cause it's mostly theaters like the Royce and Dove are doing music as well as comedy, but how many, yeah, not... how many designated clubs are there? There's lots of clubs now in Dublin. They're small, they're in bars. They're yeah. one, one night a week. They take over the lounge or the gig room or something, but there's yeah. a lot. Uh, there's a great comedy club in Cork that's been going for God, I don't know, 30 years, a place called City Limits, um, Galway. So there, there isn't... Um, uh, hang, uh, I don't know, but my, I've, I have asked around and that people are saying, yeah, there's a lot of clubs. I mean, I don't know if you can earn a living in Ireland doing it, but there are a lot of clubs. Right. And so the the living you can make in Europe is great. And then cracking the American audience has been something that I've seen... Great comics like yourself come over and you know play big theaters in but in the states, but not the clubs. I don't see like uh, Dylan Dylan Morin. Is it Morin? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, Morin. Yeah. yeah, he's been on the podcast, and I know he comes over and he he's like I know Largo is a big room for you guys. That's a place. Yeah, that, yeah. You know Flanagan runs it, and he has a great eye for taste. Obviously, he's he's Irish. Um, and then uh, I guess you work with uh, Arnold Engelman. Does he does he produce yeah. some of your shows? <clears throat> I mean, I I've done a few of the clubs um, and love them. And I think uh, that's one of the 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 American clubs are the kind of <clears throat> they're where stand up belongs in a sense. You can do stand up in football stadiums and theaters, but I think I know that I grew up listening to stuff that was recorded in clubs. Right. So going even going way back and people like Mort Sal, Woody Allen, Cosby's stuff, um Richard Pryor's stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they were all recorded in clubs, you know, and you could hear people talking in the background. Lenny Bruce um most of his famous recordings are from theatres, but there's some fabulous club recordings of his as well. So I just think that that environment is... You could say that the form, the, the stand-up comedy form was kind of invented in America. Yeah. Um, so it's... it's I, I love playing the clubs. Um, and But it, 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 in terms of 
the economics of say so I'm doing some shows in America in October and if if I say to my you know my wife and kids okay uh, I'm going to going to New York and I'm going to do some clubs there and then maybe do Omaha Nebraska Pittsburgh <laughs> and a club in Washington then I'll come home yeah and they will go well uh, have fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, we won't be here when you get back, but have yeah. fun. <laughs> have fun. So I totally get what you're saying in terms of the clubs and the difference between the clubs and the theatres. I love the clubs. Um, and uh, But in, just in terms of the economics of the thing, yeah, you end up doing the theatres because they can just, it makes sense for the promoter. It makes sense for the act. It, you know, um, but I, I love the clubs. I love them. Yeah, the club. What did you you did one at at the uh, what was the name of that place in England that you did um, something? What water rats was that the place you did a special? Oh yeah, in, in yeah, London? yeah, yeah. That yeah. I love the feel of that. There couldn't have been more than a hundred people sitting in the audience. No. And, and I recorded a special actually in New Jersey uh, in June. Yeah, in a place called Crossroads. Oh yeah. C- Comedy club, and that only fit about 120. So those places are those. I mean, the, the America's full of those places. Yeah, and you notice a ri- there's a rhythm thing as well that happens in the clubs. That if you're playing a, a theatre, uh, now it's spe- specifically only if it's been recorded. But if you're playing a theatre and you do you you say something <clears throat> and it gets a laugh, so you wait for the whatever amount of people, two three thousand people, to stop laughing. Yeah. And then you go on to the next bit. Right. But because there's so many of them, they're laughing for longer. And that just, when you're watching it at home on your computer or whatever, you're going, oh, fuck, man, this is slow. Right, right. Whereas in a club, they, they laugh for half a second and they're yeah. on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I think especially so I, I lo- that suits your style because you are uh, more of a monologist than a joke to joke guy, you know. And when you do get your laughs, it's uh, it it can fuck up the flow of your story. You're you're on a rant, and if there's an applause break in the middle of it, and that's the thing I noticed with you, you don't get a lot of what they call clapter here, which is when you do a premise like Trump's a real yeah. piece of shit. Ah, oh, that's not a joke. You didn't earn that round of applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that your stuff cuts right through that, and it becomes. Uh, you can hear a pin drop and people are hanging on every word. And if there there was those gaps of laughter and, cla- and clapping, you you lose that momentum. Well, I, I worked as an actor for a little while. So I remember when I started doing stand-up, because I'd been in a few serious plays, um, of not being afraid of the silence. And sometimes right. you get sometimes you get comedians who are phenomenal writers, but they're not great performers. So they just... Uh, they what you you just get joke after joke after joke after joke and there's no real awareness of the theatricality of stand-up or the possibilities for theatrical stand-up whereas I came from a kind of a slightly different background in that I was used to crowds being quiet I was used to trying to create different moods with words and I just brought tried to bring still everything that I'm capable of so I, I might be, you know, able to do eight different things, but only in terms of how good they are. It's only really 10 
or 11% of what's possible in those eight different things. Yeah. But if I bring all of those eight to stand up mm-hmm. and I fill this one thing with all my different 11s and 12s, then it becomes something that's unusual. And that's right. Mm. So, you know, during COVID, I wanted to stop doing stand up because there's, it's kind of like having an embarrassing, autistic, kind of slightly um, unsocial cousin or relation or something. Like I'd be embarrassed sometimes and it happens when, it, when you've got kids who hear the stuff you do on stage. I'd be embarrassed at some of the stuff I think of You're right. when I'm on stage because it's, you, it's you're, you're like the naked person at the dinner party. Right, right. You're, you're, the, you're the fool and um, it can be, I remember I said, so I'd been about a year and a half without doing stand-up and I says, okay, I actually don't, I don't want to resurrect that personality. Uh-huh. It's, I pay too high a price for it because I, I, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of what I say sometimes in the cold light of day. In the moment, it strikes me as hilarious, but in hindsight, it's actually mortifying. So I was glad to get these away from These are inner that. thoughts or these are things you express on stage? No, no. So this was when I was. No, these was. This is stuff I say out loud on stage. Yeah. You know, like, right. Um, so then I said, okay, well, what else can I do? And I said, I always kind of fancy myself as a bit of a poet. Yeah. So maybe I'll maybe I'll be I'll, maybe I'll do some poetry. Uh-huh. So I entered some online poetry competitions under another name, and I, one of the competitions I entered. No kidding. They, yeah, one of the competitions I entered. They were going to. They published the top 1,000 poems received. I didn't even fucking get into that. So that's... <laughs> so, uh, but, but I can take that shit poet part of me on stage doing stand-up. Right. And it'll be... That's where it belongs. It doesn't belong on its own in poetry, but if I can build it into the stand-up and it kind of... it It can light up the language in different parts of the set where people are laughing at the phraseology rather yes. than there being an actual joke, if that makes I, sense. I know it makes a lot of sense and it's something that I've been very aware of with stand-up is what is it that makes a comic who's a good writer and a good performer go to that next level? And it's exactly that. It's can you put together a phrase that is poetic, that can condense a bunch of thoughts, that can condense a point of view, um, a truth... Um, you know, and the and the and and how quickly people can grasp that truth in a phrase. Sure. You know, yeah. landing a joke with a phrase that resounds and and leaves you with more than just the laugh, uh, yeah. which isn't yeah. to say you have to be a comic that's always saying something, but just the phraseology is the thing that when you look at comics that are great, Bill Hicks had an amazing ability to coin to turn a phrase uh, that well, stuck with you. Just remember, remember that phrase. Remember, he said, uh, "It's been so, it's been so long since I had sex. The next time I come, it's gonna come out like a wax <laughs> dart." <laughs> and you go, "Okay." <laughs> That's you know, amazing. Straight, straight into some woman's forehead. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's, that's just great. that's poetry. Yeah, that's poetry. It that's is. Not, you know, it's um, 
and it's beautiful. So yeah. Yeah. Did Hicks come over to Ireland? Did you, did you ever see him over there? Because I know he went to no. England a bunch. Yeah. He. I'm not sure if he ever came to Ireland. Um, did he die in '94? Am I remembering that right? Sounds about right. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, about '94. Yeah. Um. So no, I don't think he ever came here. Yeah. I don't think so. Right. But we we had um we had there's a great festival over here. Um, still going but back in the late 90s it started mid to late 90s it was called the, the Kilkenny Cat Laughs sure. festival yeah, yeah Dom Irera goes every year I think. Dom Irera used to go but we had Mitch Hedberg uh-huh. uh, was, uh, when Rich Hall was first coming over so we got to see some great American comics that way yeah um, uh, so that was our only exposure really to what you guys were doing yeah so one of the things that I, um, I remember you saying was that you travel for affection. And uh, where does that, was that affected by the break during the COVID? Did you sort of realign your, um, I don't know if you'd call that a goal, but your, your dynamic with comedy after that? Did that change? I was, like I said, I, I was normal for a while. Yeah, it was really normal. Uh, I didn't have the adrenaline highs, and I didn't have the self-lacerating, self-conscious lows. I yeah. didn't have the reg- the regrets, and I didn't have the flights of fancy that that gave me huge adrenaline. And I, I felt really normal. Yeah, and um, I wanted to stop. I I I told my manager, says I'm I'm done with stand up. I don't want yeah. to be that person. Yeah, I don't want to be that out of control again. Yeah, I don't want to be that that life of because the pendulum can be extreme. You know, you can be often be exhausted at home in the afternoon. Yeah, I've I've got kids and I'm I'm lying. Yeah. I, I'm there, I need to sleep. Yeah, and, and you know, um, didn't want that. Uh, so I tried to quit. Um, my manager said to me, "Okay, well, you know, there was a, you were halfway through a tour when COVID struck. Yeah. So, what about the rest of the tour?" I said, well, "We cancel it." And she said, "Well, you can't just cancel. It. It's going to cost you money." Right. And I says, "Well, how much is going to cost?" And she said, "It's going to cost you forty-five thousand pounds to cancel the rest of the tour." Wow. And I says, "Okay, well, I'll call you tomorrow." <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then it was funny because then I had, I started getting ideas about stand-up. Well, oh, maybe I could do this or maybe I could do that. So my enthusiasm was, had reignited. But I, if, if my manager had said to me, you can stop doing stand-up now and it's not going to cost you anything, I would have stopped. Right, right. When I, start, when I went back to it, I think I probably had the best 12 of, or 18 months of stand-up it was as good as when I started. Because you'd let go so, of it. You were coming back or something. to it. I, yeah. I, I don't know right. I don't know what it was. Right. Um, but I was excited by it again once yeah. I got over the reluctance to begin. And I was, uh, and I fell in love with it again. Yeah. Then that's, and that's where I'm at with it, you know, which is a nice place to be. Well, what's your relationship with your, your not, not your younger kids, but the ones that are closer to my kids' ages, I just yeah. had a very deep conversation with my 22-year-old yesterday about how I was as a parent 
he made a little snide comment, and I kind of dug in, and I go, what did you mean by that? Like, what shortcomings did I have as a father? And one of the things he said is, well, just, you know, by default, you weren't around half the time. Yeah. You know, you were gone. And then when you came back, I felt like we weren't connected, and then we would get connected again, and then you would go away. And and the thing you just said, and you would just, it was a bad example because you weren't working during the day. You were yeah. just laying around. And I realized that I made a choice. You know, I'm not saying I prioritized my career over my kids, but, you know, to be a perfect father it doesn't entail going away. Have you have you ever had a conversation like that with your older kids about the the effect this has had on them? Well, only in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in my mind, they've lined up and, and <laughs> I haven't had the courage. I haven't had the courage to bring it up voluntarily. But inspired by you, the next time I see an opportunity, I will ask for the full <laughs> shovel, full shovel full of, <laughs> of blame and anger. All yeah, right. All right. You don't want to go I, there. I get it. No, I just, I, it's, um, I've huge... None of us were born to be absent fathers. The vast majority of people I know aren't cut out to be absent fathers. Yeah. It is the way we were able to earn a living. Yeah. And, you know, and I also think that there isn't... Sure, I think it's all okay, actually. Yeah. I think that... that Every kid comes out of childhood going, you know, you never took me swimming. Uh-huh. Uh, you never. Um, my dad used to, I used to play in goals in soccer and my dad would come to the matches and stand behind the goals. And every time the ball was coming towards me, I'd hear him go, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brutal. <laughs> That's brutal. So, so there's, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd wished I'd had an absent father. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I remember my father, so. I played ice hockey growing up and my father never mm. came to my games. And uh, he was, a, he was a, you know, an alcoholic and, you know, he, he, so he came out to one game and uh, I was so nervous and there was a kid and I, I played defense and there was a kid that was standing along the boards mm. with the puck and I took a run at him, uh, just skated as hard as I could, head down, and I went to check him, and he just got out of the way, and my father was standing in front of the glass, and I smothered myself into the glass and collapsed to the ice. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I just saw him shaking his head when I got up. I yeah, just... I don't know. I don't know that kid. <laughs> I don't know that kid. Oh, God. No, so I, I, I think there can be sometimes a... Um, a kind of a, a shape put on family life and this is the way it has to be. Yeah. And for those of us who grew up in dynamics or, or were the fathers in families that didn't quite match that shape, you can start to feel guilty. But honestly, I, I think it's okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think uh, I think it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... They didn't have, we're the first generation that's stopping cycles. You know, I mean, like in my family, like I quit drinking 
28 years ago. Mm. And, uh, you know, and before previous to that, everybody in my family was alcoholic. So, you know, my father died at 52 and my grandparents died in their 40s. And it was, and, and so, you know, my wife went from being somebody who was a latchkey kid that the parents ignored to being, a, you know, the one that reads books and is mm. like a therapist to the kids. And I think that in light of that, me being gone half the time, doesn't stack up. I think that the, the greater good was that we didn't pass down to them some of the stuff that we'd inherited and we did the work. And we did the work. How do yeah. you mean? Went to therapy, went to AA meetings, you know, we, we did the things that, that we needed to do to 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 not pass that stuff down. See, that's you see, you're so socially and emotionally responsible in America. We're still in the Ara fuck it will be grand phase <laughs> of, <laughs> of parenting. That sounds like a man who uh, got off the drink and is back on the drink again. Hey, you read my bio. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I so I, I I was off drink for eight years. Yeah, um, and loved it. Loved. Being sober, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I um, liked being sober at parties. I liked waking up in the morning without a hangover. Um, liked being in control, relative control. And then after eight years, my wife begged me to start drinking again. Get out. What? My, she, we, were, my, we were on holidays in County Cork. And she said to me, you're no fun anymore. There's a bottle of wine in the fridge. Please drink it. Wow. Subsequently, subsequently she has become a psychotherapist. (laughs) (laughs) She's generally known as the worst psychotherapist in Ireland right now. Um, So, uh, but yeah, I started drinking again and... I do think it's it's a it's a dynamic relationship in that it is you can't take it for granted. So I would have gone through phases where I drank when I started again of drinking too much, and then kind of been able to to drink very well in terms of if I was in a situation where where somebody offered me a drink, I was able to take it without having to get absolutely drunk. Right. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. It's not, it's not, you have to keep an eye on it. I'm jealous. Uh, I believe me, there's times where there's an outdoor party in the summer and a glass mm. of cold beer just feels like it would be the greatest. And, and obviously being in Ireland was probably the biggest test of not sure. drinking ever. I was with, yeah. you know, in a house with 10 people and, and they were drinking night and day, the, you know, the greatest beer in the world. And, um, it, it was tough, and uh, and I do wonder sometimes if I could go back and 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 you know have a relationship with it the way you do. But well, it'd be interesting to talk to you in a year when you're divorced and have a beard and <laughs> are missing three teeth and a couple of black eyes, and you're yeah. there. You know, it didn't work out quite the way for me as it did for you. Well, I think that's, yeah, I think that's the film is we've got the scene where I die doing cocaine my senior year of high school, but then there's yeah. this sort of like, what the if? sequel. This is the what <laughs> if. Right, right. Turns out he didn't die in the car crash. They brought him back to life. The Last Temptation of Fitzsimmons. <laughs> Right back on the cocaine. My stand-up gets better than it ever was. Oh, I wow. yeah, yeah. I'm selling out theaters instead of clubs. But ultimately, he's a broken, lonely man. 
Yeah, well, 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 well done, and, and and more power to you in yeah. in staying off the drink. Well, I, I look, it's on a case by case. But I shouldn't also, I should also include that I'm what they call California sober, where I started smoking weed again about ten years ago. Not a lot, oh, yeah. but a little bit. That and that that helps. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I I want to end out by asking you. I always, whenever I have comedians on, I have a segment called Fastballs with Fitz. I'm going to ask yeah, you just the same questions I ask all my my comedy friends. We're friends, right? For sure. All right. For sure. I wish I could have seen you in Ireland. That would have been nice to have a cup of coffee. Well, I'm going you. to be in LA <clears throat> in October. I know I'm out of town. I'm out of town when okay. you're here. Okay. I'm so bummed, but right. uh, you'll have a good time. And Michael O'Brien. Uh, got us That's in right. touch. Who's the best? Yeah, how long yeah. you how long have you worked with Michael O'Brien? I first said hello to Michael way back in about two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Okay, I think yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, he I, I work with him as well. The best publicist in the business. Um, so uh, what is the worst opener you ever had in your career? When you say opener, do you mean somebody who support on before? Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> my goodness! The worst opener. God Almighty! I'm trying to. I'll try. I'm trying to think while I'm talking and, and fill up the space with sounds. You know, maybe I should send these questions to people in advance. I think that would be more fair. But I wouldn't opener. want to give somebody homework. That doesn't seem uh, right. The only thing that it reminds me of, and it's not really connected. Yeah. But it's it has reminded me of this. So um, there's a, a fantastic Irish comedian called Andrew Maxwell. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've heard of Andrew. No. He's brilliant. Anyway. Uh, one winter, about 18 years ago, I had a show in London in the Tottenham Court Road in a comedy club where I subsequently saw Jackie Mason, who blew me away. But this particular night, it was a Christmas party. Um, and uh, so uh, London office people were there. I left Galway on the west coast of Ireland about five o'clock in the morning to get there. By the time I went on stage, they were drunk. <laughs> And I lost my temper with them. Yeah. And I said, fuck you. And started just attacking English culture, English heroines, attacking them in my rich Irish brogue. And they hated me <laughs> and started, started throwing money at me, like coins, <laughs> to get me off the stage. And I did get off the stage, but not before saying, You've all been a bunch of cunts. My name is Andrew Maxwell. Good night. <laughs> ah, that's fantastic. So that's the only, that's what that question reminded me of, that particular incident in my life where I... <laughs> Did you do your time? Did you stay up there for your whole time? Well, I stayed up for my time, yeah, yeah but... Uh, that's the key. That's the key. That's, you ever see Bill key. Burr in Philadelphia take on the crowd? No, oh, no. dude, write that down right now. Bill okay. Burr, Philadelphia crowd, hecklers. He goes on, and it's a very similar situation. Okay. It, it, yeah, yeah. Okay. He, and he hit them with every... He attacked them for being from Philadelphia, where some of the greatest boxers of all time, professional boxers, oh, yeah. came from Philadelphia. Yeah, and yeah. he said, this city is so racist, the only statue you have for a boxer is Rocky. And he's not even a real guy, but he's white. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll ask you this there's two types of people in the world go me and everybody else there you go that's the only right answer 
If you're not saying that, you're not a real comedian. Yeah. Um, have you ever not finished a set on stage? Yeah, about a year and a half ago, I walked off stage with about. Uh, it was part of that beginning to get into stand up again after I said I didn't want to do it. Yeah. And I just I got sixty of the percent of the way through the show, and I said, "No, I'm not doing this. Good luck." And was that on them or on you? Uh, it was. It was back when. Remember when people were coming to comedy clubs with masks on? Yeah. And we're sitting two feet away from everybody. Right. right. And it was just. It was like I'd stood up in a hospital waiting room. And I <laughs> <laughs> was trying to humour them with my filth. I just gonna, Fantastic. Oh, fuck this. Fuck That's this. great. If you can't see, that was the worst. When you can't see their faces and you just see their eyes and their eyes seem to be frozen and you don't know what's going so, on here. No. That's 50% of the feedback we're getting. And if you yeah, can't yeah. see that, you don't know what's, what's going on. And I think you're a connected comedian. There are comedians, like, I don't think Brian Regan would have been affected by masks because he just puts it out. He goes out, he's got his act, he does it. You're very in tune with the audience, even though you, I think because you put it out, I mean, essentially you come on stage and you hang out. For a minute, you don't you don't dive in. Yeah, sure. But and, I'm like Brian Regan, and with, it's with sex. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Just head down, throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're sexy. <laughs> don't look at her face. You can put a no. mask on. I don't give a Just, shit. Just shovel it out there, right. loud and hard. Right. <laughs> but uh, but you you put it out, and then you draw them in. You you come at you come at them with a fucking fiery rant, and the microphone is down by your belt buckle. Your mic technique is really interesting. And then you draw them in and you put the mic right on your lips and you whisper yeah. and you bring them in again and you're watching them the whole time. It's like a, it's like a lion tamer. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, and then I'll finally ask you, what is the hackiest bit you've ever done? Oh, I think I'm, I think I'm writing one at the moment. Um <laughs> The hackiest bit I've ever done. I don't think I'm ever very. Yeah, hack is always a possibility. Sometimes it's enjoyable. Yeah. I try not to be. Sometimes I don't. I try not to be too snobby about laughter. Now that can lead you down the the uh, uh, road of what's it called the of the least de- denomination where yeah. your stuff isn't clever. It's too obvious. It's crude and all that. Um, but I, I suppose for me, if I was if I was describing a set idealistically, it would be a set that had hack in it. Sure. You know yeah. that you have moments of silence and drama and theatricality, moments of kind of clever concepts, moments of where the phrase is funnier than the meaning. Uh huh. And, and moments of hack as well. Right, right. To, to almost not, not to take any of it too seriously, but not to dwell too long in any one of the styles either. Right. Maybe, I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm certainly not, um, I'm not a purist really. Uh, I'll tell you, so here's, again, this, this is only half connected to what we were saying, but it's a nice joke to end on. So there's a comedian in the UK in the 1970s and 80s called Bernard Manning. Uh, 
and he was uh, was quite popular at the time. Um, but as people's awareness to their environment grew, they realised a lot of his stuff was racist, like uh-huh. very racist, very um, obviously anti-black, anti-Asian, anti-Irish. Um, and he had his own comedy club in Manchester, gigged there seven nights a week, full of drinking people. And I saw him do a joke once that really made me laugh. Uh, dark room the place is packed full of cigarette smoke and drunk people he says uh, and he's renowned he's renowned for being so ultra British that it has no room for anybody that he doesn't think is British right so always attacking people of other races he says uh We've got some soldiers in tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Got some soldiers in. They're just back from the Falklands. Just back from the Falklands and for fighting for their country. And the crowd fucking stands up and starts cheering, you know. And then they sit down and he says, they're Argentinian. (laughs) 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 So if, if even the most racist comic is capable yes. of a good line every now and again. Right. That, that I like to think that even, that we're all capable, that I'm capable of hack. Right, right, right. And I, and I don't, and I try, I try not to give myself too hard a time about that, it. That was maybe one of the best responses I've heard to that because it is joyous to throw in uh, a joke. I have a joke about, you know, the proctology exam. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and I have a tagline to the joke that I, if I saw another, if I walked into the room and I saw a com, Mark Marin do that one line, I'd be like, I just, I, I don't know about this Mark Marin anymore. And that's yeah, why yeah. I love doing it. I love to just, the, you know, just the, and, and it fucking kills. So you know, joy, joy doesn't have any boundaries. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's ultimately that's, you know, we want the the greatest nights of of laughing are when we all leave the venue slightly happier um, and more joyful than when we went in. And right. if that includes hack and silly jokes, right? So be so be it. You know, so be, so it. be it. All right, uh, Tommy, I can't thank you enough. I've been looking forward to this for years. I've always wanted to have you on, and I'm I'm just so grateful you gave me your time and. And I'm so bummed I won't be here when you're in L.A. But you will be at the in Seattle on October 16th, Portland, October 17th, Los Angeles, October 19th through 21 at the Great Largo Theater, San Diego, October 23rd, and San Francisco, October 25th. If you want to get tickets, go to Tommy Tiernan dot. What is the what is the ending of your com? Oh, it is .com. I thought it was something else. Yeah. Um, and you can get that's uh, T-I-E-R-N-A-N. Um, I can't, cannot recommend enough. You will see somebody and it, it, it'll it stay with you. It's going to be hacky. It's going to be <laughs> silly. Go enjoy it. Thanks, Greg. Mind yourself. All right. All the best. <laughs>